Matthew chapter 8, we've been going verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. We're going to start in verse 23, but really quickly I want to set this up because we're going to come to some text this morning uh, that in I, I think in a lot of ways are going to confront our sensibilities. So if you're new to church, if this is your first time in church, or you got invited by a friend, or you're not a follower of Jesus, or you got, you know, whatever, you dragged here kicking and screaming, whatever the case is, uh, there's going to be some stuff that we're going to come up against this morning that are, it's going to challenge our worldview. We're, we're going to hear about Jesus calming a storm. We're going to hear him uh, casting out demons out of, about, about Jesus casting out demons out of people. And some of this is like going to just really come up against like sort of the, our modern sensibilities, right? A lot of us swim in this worldview of you know, kind of secular naturalism, this idea that, that all that exists is the natural world, that all that exists is what you can taste and touch and see and smell and, and feel. And any kind of talk of metaphysical, spiritual realities, demons, uh, you know, miracles, this is just hocus pocus. A lot of people read the Bible and they just view it as myth. They view it as uh, people just making up stories, whatever the case is. And, and what this what I want us to do this morning before we jump into this text is, is not ask us to check our brain at the door. Okay? The Bible is not going to come at us, confront our worldview, and then just say to us, you should check your brain at the door, you should check your sensibilities and your critical thinking at the door. That's not the ask of Scripture. But what I want to submit to us just before we jump into this text is this, is that perhaps it is possible that while we have embraced a particular worldview, a particular way of thinking that does explain certain aspects of the world that we live in, that it is not a holistic worldview that can answer every question, all time, all places. That there are things that fall outside of the realm of what science specifically can actually uh, inform us or tell us about. That there are things that cannot be tested in a laboratory. There are uh, questions that, that science cannot answer. When we start to talk about things like morality, when we start to talk about things like aesthetic beauty, when we talk about love, all of these things, these fall outside of the realm of science. Uh, and I want to just read a quote. This should be on the screen behind us. This is by a philosopher and theologian, Marcus J. Borg. Here's what he says. He says, the outright objection of the supernatural comes from a rigid application of the modern world's vision of reality, which is but only one of a large number of humanly constructed maps of reality. It's impressive because, talking about the natural worldview, it's impressive because of the degree of control it has given us, but it is no more an absolute map of reality than any of the previous maps. To rule out even asking questions about divine activity is not a neutral, it is an act of cultural homogeny. And so we live in this world where we kind of feel like if we believe any of this stuff, like we're, you know, this is kind of like when you're at like a party and someone's like, oh, you go to church, do you believe that? You're like, you, you sort of feel like a doofus, right? You're like, oh, yeah, you believe that? Like, uh. And that's because most people are just reading from the teleprompter of culture. They're just embracing a worldview. They're just swimming in water and they haven't even asked the question, what is the water I'm swimming in? And so here's my encouragement to you. I don't have time to unpack. Here is what I want you to consider. That perhaps there are things that cannot be answered by purely natural means. And here's my ask of you this morning. If you're, you know, if you're a skeptic, if you are new to this whole thing, if you're not sure where you stand when it comes to Jesus, uh, God, and all of these bigger questions, here's, here's, what, here's my ask. Is this text is going to confront you this morning. Doubt your doubts. 
question your questions. Apply the same amount of rigor that you would apply to the scriptures, to the thing, the view, the worldview that you hold that is littered with and loaded with all kinds of presuppositions and assumptions that you probably haven't thought of. Okay, so that's a big ask, but that's the ask, and we're going to jump in now. Okay, here we go. I don't have any time to go any further with that. I would love to. We're going to do a whole series on this in the fall, so hang with us. Come again. Matthew chapter 8, picking up in verse 23. So let me just set the scene here. Jesus was on uh, the mountainside preaching the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. He comes down off the mountain. He enters into the world. He starts living out what it looks like to live out the Sermon on the Mount in the everyday. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus preaching all about what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And now what we're seeing is Matthew giving us a picture of what it looks like when the kingdom is actually lived out. So here we go, Matthew chapter eight, buckle up. Hope you had coffee. Here we go, verse 23. Then he got in the boat, that being Jesus, and his disciples followed him. So right here, just to give you a sense of what is going on, this language that Matthew uses, this phrase followed him, is actually a term ascribed to discipleship. So if you go back, if you were here last week, Andrew preached verses 18 to 22, where he talked about these uh, these two men who had questions of Jesus and and Jesus' invitation for them to follow him unapologetically, to be unreasonable in their followership of Jesus. Well, here they actually did that. So there's some disciples. We don't know for sure how many. Most scholars think it's the 12 are with Jesus. And interestingly enough, if you go ahead in Matthew chapter 9, you're going to see that Jesus hasn't called Matthew yet. But that's just the way that the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus are written. They're not written linearly. They're written in such a way as to make a point. So what we have here is we have this picture of men following Jesus. We have this picture of discipleship. And that's important because that's going to set the context for the rest of the story. So Matthew goes on, he says this in verse 24, suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Now, what's important to understand about what Matthew's doing here in Matthew chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 9 is he's indeed telling us historical stories. He's telling us about events that actually occurred, but he's not merely telling us history. All of these uh, accounts of miracles, all of these accounts of healings are more than just data, right? This isn't a story about the weather, in other words. This isn't a story about how to actually, you know, have influence or sway over, over the weather. That's not, that's not Matthew's point here. His point is that all of these healing instances are actually living parables, he's trying to give us a, an event, he's, he's telling us the story of an event that occurred But he's trying to give us a bigger picture, tell us a bigger story here. And so he starts by saying, then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him and then a furious storm came. So again, this isn't about weather. This is about discipleship. This is about your life. This isn't about, you know, good boating habits when you're out on the water. This is about how we go through Life And when he talks about storms here, he uses a particular phrase. He says, suddenly a furious storm came. The, the literal translation of this could be earthquake. So in other words, just to set the scene up here, Jesus calls some guys to follow him. They follow him. They're, they're in a boat. And a really big storm comes. I don't know if you've ever been in a really big storm. I have never been. I don't spend a lot of time on the water, but there was a time. There was a time, I was in Indonesia, six weeks mission, six week missions trip. I was there between my third and my fourth year uh, of college and we went fishing in the Indian Ocean. We got into a, I don't know, it looked like a canoe. It had 
these pontoony things on the side. I just did it because they told me I had to. So we go out, we go out and uh, it's a great day. It's a sunny day. It's a nice day. You're out in the Indian Ocean. This is awesome, like bucket list kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, the clouds come. All of a sudden, the weather changes. All of a sudden, it goes from sunny to like kind of, you know, that awkward, eerie, like cold. And you can just feel something is happening in the atmosphere. And sure enough, it was. The sky goes dark. The wind starts to blow. It doesn't rain, but the wind starts to blow. And out on the Indian Ocean, there's like massive sea swells. And so we're in this like canoe pontoon thing and the sea swell would come and you would get kind of stuck in between two of the swells and it was like two gigantic walls of water on either side. Now I know I have a tendency to hyperbolize when I preach. Like (laughs) don't laugh at me. That's my wife. She's laughing at me. She's like, you're a liar. You don't hyperbolize. You actually make stuff up sometimes. That's whatever. That only, never mind. I was terrified. And no joke, the boat sprung a leak. You can't make this stuff up. This is the sovereignty of God knowing that one day I was going to have to stand in front of you and preach this text. And so there's, there's one like Indonesian person like bucketing water with like an ice cream bucket out. And we're, and I was terrified. I don't know if you've been in an experience that has been anything like that, but you have this moment where you just feel so small. You feel so helpless. You feel hopeless. You feel alone. Like I was fairly confident that I was going to die in the Indian Ocean in Indonesia. Like this was the worst thing ever. It ended fine. We got to shore. All was well. But here's Jesus's point. Do not miss it. If you are going to follow him, you will indeed, you will indeed hit storms in your life. Your decision to follow Jesus does not preclude you from going through things that are hard. In fact, if what Matthew is saying here is true, your decision to follow Jesus pretty much guarantees that you will go through some hard things. And this shouldn't surprise us. If you've been here for any length of time, I mean, we talk about this a lot at West Village, but Jesus talked about this a lot through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 in his list of the Beatitudes. At the end of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake or because of me. In other words, as you follow me, as you live in light of my teachings, you will be persecuted. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uses this metaphor of our lives that are are like homes or houses that are built on various foundations. And what does he say there? He says, the storms will come. The wind and the waves will come. It will happen. Be prepared. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Some of the reasons for the storms coming are, are because of the hard things that happen in life, right? We, we, our marriages go through hardship. Our, our relationship with our kids go through hardship. Our finances go through kids, uh, go through hardship. Like things get hard. It's hard. Life is hard. It kicks you in the teeth sometimes. But make no mistake about it, part of the reason why following Jesus does not preclude you but guarantees that you will endure storms is because you're following Jesus. Like you have this complete worldview shift that now you view all of life through a different lens. So the life of a Christian is one of suffering. The life of a Christian is one of laying down your own agenda. The life of a Christian is one of laying down your own wallet, your time, everything for his mission. And so now you see life through a completely different lens, through a completely different perspective. And so the question isn't, 
Will you go through storms? The question is, which storms are you going through? Which storms are you going through right now? Which storms are you experiencing? Is it like the first category? Like the, man, my marriage is on the rocks. My, my relationship with my kids is not good. I'm not sure if, you know, paycheck to paycheck. Like, I hope, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or is it something else? Is it you suffering for the sake of the gospel? Are you suffering because of righteousness sake? Are you suffering because there's an ask at work and you won't do it? There's, there's a perspective you hold that you can't be silent about for the sake of the gospel and it's causing you to come under hardship. There's a promotion that is up for grabs, but because of your view on a particular issue or the way you conduct yourself, and obviously I'm talking about in good ways, not being a jerk for Jesus, but being kind for Jesus. It's actually giving someone else a leg up. I mean, we, we one time were involved in some legal stuff. We had to meet with a lawyer. The first question the lawyer asked, she didn't ask any questions about the case. The first question she asked is, what's your view on marriage? As a, as a pastor, what's your view on marriage? I said, well, why is that relevant to this? She goes, because one day we're going to possibly be standing in front of a judge and I need to know where you stand on this because that might actually influence his ruling over your case. There's a reality to following Jesus that means storms will come. So the question isn't, will you go through storms? The question is, which storms will you go through? And maybe for some of you right now, this morning, in this moment, just like I was out on the water and I felt small and I felt insignificant and I felt alone, and I felt hopeless, and I felt helpless. That's where you're sitting today. This lands. You feel it. Look at what Matthew goes on to say. Second half of verse 24. But Jesus was sleeping. Well, that's not very helpful. That's not very helpful. My life is going down the toilet, and Jesus is taking a nap. Have you ever felt like that? Right? Have you ever had the dark night of the soul, the moment of hopeless, the moment of helpless, the moment of, it's just, it's like alone, it's small, you're lying in bed, and you cry out, God, where are you? And it feels like he's taking a nap. Friends, do not confuse the sleeping of Jesus for his disinterest in your situation but rather for the confidence he has in himself. Because look at what happens next. Check this out. Verse 25, sorry. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We are going to drown. So the disciples on the boat with Jesus, following him, the storms come. They look for Jesus. He's taking a nap. They run to him and they yell out, Lord, save us. They wake him up and yell out, Lord, save us. We are going to drown. Whether we like it or not, when the storms come, they have this ability like nothing else to produce something in us that nothing else will ever produce in us. 
The storms come. Like if it was a nice day out, if it was sunny and the disciples were up on the deck working on their tan, there would have been nothing that would have produced in them this angst that would have caused them to run to Jesus to cry out to him. But yet the storms come. And what's the first thing they do when the storms come? They run to Jesus and cry out to him. This is a metaphor for our lives. When there's zero, there's zeros in the bank account, when life is good, when, when our relationship with our spouse is good, when our relationship with our kid is good, when everything's going the way we think it should be going, when we're conf- confident, rather, when we feel like we are in control, when we feel like we have our hands firmly gripped on the wheel, we know exactly where the bus is going because we are driving it, we don't run to Jesus. But when life is out of control and the storms are coming and it feels like the boat is taking on water and sinking, we run to him. And listen, I don't care if you're a follower of Jesus or this is your first time ever in church to quote C.S. Lewis, there are no atheists in the foxholes. Or the Chris version of this, there's no atheist when the plane is crashing. When the plane is going down, everyone gets on their face. Why? Because storms have a way of producing something in us. They squeeze us tight. And they draw out of us what is really in us. So the disciples come to Jesus, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now listen to his reply. It's very un-Jesus-like of him. Verse 26, he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? So they come to him. They're expecting him to do something. Jesus, things are falling apart here. Wake up. You know, stop napping. Okay, wait, wake up. Now do something. And he doesn't do anything. His first order of business is to look at the disciples and say, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? In other words, what Jesus isn't doing here is encouraging them. This is actually a rebuke. The disciples come to Jesus. They want him to comfort them. They want him to make everything better. And Jesus doesn't do that. He actually comes and rebukes them. Now, listen, a lot of you have heard this text preached, and it goes something like this. Life is hard. There's going to be storms in your life, but Jesus is Lord over the storm, and he's going to heal every storm in your life. He can just speak and the waves and the wind will stop. As you'll see in just a second, that is the case. He can speak, and the wind and the waves will stop. But do not miss the point of this text, because the entire understand, your entire understanding of this text hinges on your understanding of Jesus' response to the disciples. Because here's the deal, friends. Sometimes the wind and the waves don't stop. Sometimes the storms don't stop. Sometimes you die of cancer. Sometimes the marriage ends. Sometimes you lose everything. Sometimes your kids walk away from you. Sometimes you are left all alone, broken, disheveled, sleeping on your friend's couch, wondering how you got here. When will it stop? And Jesus says... You of little faith, why are you so afraid? You see, Jesus isn't upset with the disciples for coming to him with questions. That's not his rebuke here. 
Look at what he says. Put your nose in it if you got your Bible. Look at the screen. You of little faith. His rebuke is that they had little faith. See, the disciples' problem wasn't that they were going to die. They weren't scared of the storms. They weren't scared of dying. Their problem was that they had little faith. Their problem was that they they didn't know Jesus. Like, they knew him, but they didn't know him. I mean, obviously, they knew Jesus could do something. They'd seen him perform miracles. They'd seen him heal people. That's why they ran to him, because they knew he could do something. But their knowledge of Jesus, their awareness of who Jesus really is, wasn't enough to actually take away their fear. So the question we have to ask then is this, what is it about Jesus that we need to know? What is it about him that actually can take away our fear? Because we, a lot of us, at least, we know him. We know about him, but we don't actually know him intimately. We don't know him personally. We don't know him in such a way that he can actually take away the fear. And, and here's my concern for us, and I don't want you to hear Jesus say this. So often what we can do, here can be our response to someone who's struggling, struggling with the storm in their life, struggling with the, the broken things of the world crashing down on them. Here can be what we say to them, just believe more, trust more, have more faith. oh, you're just not believing the gospel enough. That's not what Jesus is saying. If you ever hear someone say, oh, you just need to have more faith, you just need to believe the gospel more, just tell them I said that's satanic. Blame me. Because that puts the onus and the burden back on you to muster up the faith to believe. And what Jesus is saying here is something completely different. He's not trying to make light of our storm. He's trying to make much of who he is. What Jesus is saying is just see me for who I really am. I am the Lord of the storm. You see, when we see Jesus as he really is, when we, when we look out at him and we see him in all his glory and we see him in all his goodness and grandeur. Here's what happens. The storms, they don't go away necessarily, but they become small compared to the glory of God. And so you'll you'll notice what Jesus does, right? He gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and then it went completely calm, and the men were amazed, and they asked what kind of Man, is this even the wind and the waves obey? And they still don't really get it. They still don't really understand who it is. But but I want you to see something here. Jesus, with one word, speaks. He speaks and he ends the storm. And so what Jesus is saying to us here is, it might not always be that the storm goes away, but I have authority. I have lordship even over the storms. That in the same way that I can speak, One word, and the wind and the waves obey. I, too, on the cross speak, it is finished. And your sin is taken care of. And if you would rest in who I am and in light of 
what I've done for you. If you would rest in the reality that, that I am Lord over all things, Lord over your salvation, Lord over even the storms. You can walk through the storms and not be afraid. See, Jesus' hope, his desire here is not to make little of the storms, but to make much of himself. His desire is that we would see him as greater and that then our storms, they wouldn't overwhelm us. The boat wouldn't take on so much water because Jesus would be with us in the boat sleeping. Not because he's apathetic, but because he's so confident that we look at our life and we say, oh, house sucks, but I have Jesus. Some money, it sucks, but I have Jesus. My reputation, it sucks, but I have Jesus. Friends are betraying me, that sucks, but I still have Jesus. He is Lord. Story goes on, Matthew goes on, verse 28, he says this, When he, being Jesus, arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadareans, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. And they were so violent that no one could pass that way. So, So here's what's happening. Jesus gets in this boat. He goes through this experience with the disciples. And then Matthew says he comes to the other side. Matthew's going to use this phrase, the other side, many times in his gospel. And check this out. Every single time he uses the phrase, Jesus went to the other side, here's what he's saying. Jesus went from uh, the, the Jewish religious region to a region where the Gentiles lived. And so there's this reality here that, that Matthew's trying to show us, and he's done this in every single one of his sets of miracles of Jesus here, that, that Jesus is actually interested in those who are Gentiles. He's, and Gentiles just means those who don't have, you know, they're not of Jewish origin, meaning they were outside of the grace of God. And so we get this beautiful picture here of the kingdom of God that he's actually for those who are on the outside. So again, if you're here and you don't, you're not a follower of Jesus, you know, I meet people all the time and they, they come into uh, you know, they come into our Sunday gathering here at the movie theater, and I'll meet them in the lobby, and they'll say, yeah, I got invited by a friend, or I just want to come check it out. And the reason I came here wasn't because, you know, your cool website or anything like that. It was because uh, you meet in a movie theater, you're not a real church, and if I actually went into a real church, I would, you know, combust into flames or get struck by lightning or something like that. But because this isn't a real church, I'm less afraid of that happening. And, you know, so much of that is true. <laughs> you know? But but here, here's the deal, though. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like, there's nobody, there's nobody that God cares about more than those who think they're the furthest from him. That's what Matthew's trying to show us here, that Jesus went to the other side. He's for the outsider. He's for the person who is far from God. Like I had a conversation with somebody and they were like telling me about somebody else's brokenness in the church, which is always awesome. Great to start a conversation with me about somebody else's brokenness. That just goes really well with me and goes super far. And I said, well, listen, here's the deal. There's two ways to look at people, right? We can either look at people uh, we, can, we can go to the end of the spectrum where we expect people to be and look down the corridor of time at where they are and go, man, why can't you get to where you're supposed to be? Or we can go from the beginning of the journey, look down this way at where they are and go, way to go. God's doing a great work in your life. This is amazing. Now, if we were to take this perspective, look at the from the end back at everyone and then say anyone who doesn't measure up, meet our expectation, do the things we want them to do, you know, whatever it is, 
whatever the bee in your bonnet is, because we all have the bee in our bonnet, the one sin that we think everyone else shouldn't struggle with, and that's only because it's the one we don't struggle with, whatever. Here's what, here's what happened. It'd be really quiet here on Sundays. Because nobody would be here. I wouldn't be preaching, there'd be no band, and none of you would be here. The communion line, in other words, would be really short because none of us would qualify. And what Jesus is trying to show us, what Matthew's trying to show us through the life and ministry of Jesus is that God is for you. It doesn't matter what you did, what you didn't do, what you did last night, Sunday morning comes after Saturday night, I get it. Some of you are like still up, right? This isn't like early in the morning, this is late at night for you. Here's the deal, God's for you. He leaves the 99 for the one. He's desperate for those who feel like they are the furthest away. And that's what Matthew is trying to show us. And it, like, I mean, it couldn't get any more clear here because not only does he come to the other side, he comes to these two men who are demon-possessed. And here we get this picture of these two kingdoms colliding. We have the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Jesus just completely colliding. In God's story, demons are fallen angels. They are those who, who were with God but rebelled against God because they didn't want to serve God. And so now here's the demon's role. The demon's role is to do anything and everything to get those of us who are here on the earth to not follow Jesus. And so Jesus comes in, and Matthew's trying to show us that Jesus has authority over the wind and the waves, but here what he's trying to show us is that Jesus also has authority over the spiritual realm. This is like Ephesians 6 kind of stuff where the apostle Paul says, your, your battle is not flesh and blood, but it's powers and principalities. It's the spiritual realm. Like right now, in this moment, there is a spiritual battle that is waging for your hearts and for your minds. There is a spiritual battle where Satan is working over time to try and convince you to be good, nice, safe, little, domesticated, obedient Christians. Where we pat ourselves on the back for doing a few nice things, we clap, and we come, and we sing, and we do stuff, but it ends there. There's a battle going on for the hearts and minds of those of you who are here, and you're like, you're not a follower of Jesus. Satan is trying to turn, turn you into an ardent skeptic, a hard-hearted, rebellious skeptic. And we think the battle's physical, but it's not. And in the Western world, you know, we don't like to talk about this stuff. We don't like to talk about Satan. We don't like to talk about demons because we're, you know, influenced by the Enlightenment and we have cell phones and we can, you know, I don't know, order food through drive through windows and watch YouTube videos while we go to the bathroom. And so we think we're sophisticated and we've graduated beyond these elementary beliefs. Well, I don't know if there's anybody in here who's ever seen the movie The Usual Suspects. There's a great line in that movie, quoted often. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist. And what we see here is that there's a collision of kingdoms, that right now there's a collision of kingdoms. There is a war that is being waged for your heart and mind. And do not deceive yourself into thinking that because, you know, you got baptized, because you prayed a prayer, because you come to church on Sunday, because you raise your hands in worship, because you give, because you're one of the people who signed up to serve, and because you're doing all the churchy things, that somehow that battle is not yours. It is yours. 
Satan's job is to get you right where he wants you, where you're not effective for the kingdom of God. And it might be sitting here in a church gathering on Sunday every single week. You would love it that you would go home convicted, tears in your eyes, conviction in your heart. Go home, sit down, make a sandwich, and turn on the television. And then forget all about it and do it again next week. So Jesus has this confrontation because there's a battle taking place. The demons respond. They say this to Jesus as he encounters them. What do you want with us, son of God? I don't have time to go into this, but this is interesting. The demons actually knew who Jesus was. Okay, so it's possible to know about Jesus, but not actually be a follower of Jesus. There's a real sense in which this should terrify us. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who humble themselves. What was the, the very essence of the fall of Satan, the fall of the demons? It was pride. It, was, it wasn't that they didn't have knowledge. They knew. They know. They know better than you do who Jesus was. They know exactly who he is. They refused to humble themselves and submit to him. Knowledge is not enough. We have to humble ourselves and submit to Jesus. Then it goes on and says this. This is where it gets really weird. Verse 30, some distance from them, Jesus and these two men who are possessed by the demons, a large herd of pigs was feeding. Verse 31, and the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Huh? It's too early and too dark for this. What is going on? This is an odd request. So, so the pigs, it wasn't like one or two. It was more like hundreds. It's most commentators say probably thousands of pigs. This was the primary industry or the, the engine that ran the economy in this particular town. And it's there that the demons wanted to be sent out. Why? Us making any sense of this text hinges on us understanding. Don't forget what I said. The, the demon's primary objective, Satan's primary objective with you, what he's trying to do right now, even in this moment, is get you from, to, to get you from following Jesus, wholeheartedly sold out for Jesus and his mission. That's his primary goal. Look at what happens. Verse 32, he said to them, Jesus said to them, go. Okay, so he has authority over the wind and the waves. He has authority over the spiritual realms, right? He is Lord over all things. So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they died in the water. This is so bizarre. Those tending to the pigs, here we go, okay, lean in here. Verse 33, those tending to the pigs ran off, went to the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So, Jesus casts out the demons out of the men into the pigs, just like the demons requested. Why would Jesus do this? This is, this is just interesting, okay? You got to think through this stuff with me here. The pigs go down, they die. The, the guys who were in charge of herding the pigs, the farmers or whatever, they're like, this is unbelievable, right? This is a big deal. Like, this is kind of cool. This is an unusual day at the office, okay? So they go into town and they start telling everybody about what Jesus had done. Like, you guys got to come and see this guy. You got to come and see what he's done. He's, he's, he's got authority over the spiritual realm. You remember those two guys who were like frothing at the mouth, hanging out in the, in the, in the cemetery, those weird dudes? Yeah, Jesus healed them. He cast the demons out of them. They went into these pigs. They got, this is unbelievable. This is a big deal. 
These guys are pumped. They go to town. They tell everybody. You would think everybody would be pumped. Look at verse 34. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. So they ran to Jesus. Just like the disciples in the boat ran to Jesus, they ran to Jesus and they weren't excited about what Jesus had done. They ran to Jesus and they pleaded with him, do not come. Why? Because they saw what happens when Jesus comes. Right? The pigs, they all died. The pigs, which represented their livelihood, the pigs, which represented the engine that drove their economy, they were killed. And they didn't want that to happen to them. One guy I was reading on these verses said, there's actually two possessions in this text. There's the demon possession, the demon possession of the men. But then there is the possession of the people by the pigs. See, they chose the pigs over Jesus. Jesus, who came from the other side, who came from from the Jewish region to the Gentile region, who came from the insiders to the outsiders, who came from heaven to earth, who went great distances to meet these people, to have them experience who he is. He went to them. Not interested. Too costly. Not prepared to give up some pigs to know the God of the universe. And we hear that, and we're like, that's foolish. But the obvious question then is, what is the pigs in your life? So here's the reality. Jesus wants to come from the other side, right, for you, for me. But sometimes, in order to receive him, he has to kill some pigs. Sometimes there's some things in our life that we have to let die so that we can receive Jesus. And we've done a marvelous job, a marvelous job at rationalizing and just, this is what I call justification gymnastics, justifying why this thing or this thing or that thing, it doesn't get to get put up on the altar to be taken care of by Jesus. And we run to Jesus, but we don't run to him like the disciples. Lord, save us. We run to him like the people in the town, and we plead with him to leave. This sounds like our city. Our city, Jesus is desperate to come to our city. I mean, he's doing such a marvelous work. He's sending pastors. He's sending church planters. Some of you have moved here, and you think you moved here for a view and maybe a paycheck or a promotion or a quality of life uh, improvement, but you moved here because the Spirit of God put you here to be on mission to the city of Victoria, and the city of Victoria is looking at the church going, I'm not interested I'd rather have my pigs. I'd rather have my worldview. I'd rather have my West Coast 
lifestyle. I'd rather live in suburbia. I'd rather have my square footage. Jesus will. He'll let you have it. I mean, it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus stepped into a boat. He'll leave. But his invitation for us, whether we're followers of Jesus, whether it's your first time, is to ask the question, are we possessed? (laughs) Are we possessed, maybe not by demons, but by pigs? What do we got to let go of so the Spirit of God can do what only the Spirit of God will do in and through our lives? What are the pigs? I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to close. I want to read a passage of Scripture out of the Old Testament. Book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Book of Isaiah is often talked about as the fifth gospel. Because if you read through the book of Isaiah, it's really telling the gospel narrative. It's really telling the story of of the gospel pre-Jesus in the Old Testament. And then Isaiah 65 comes after Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the text that we call the suffering servant. Suffering servant is this foreshadowing of the reality of what Jesus is going to do for us on the cross. It's the reality of Jesus uh, being made into our sin, going to the cross, laying down his life that we might have relationship with God. And then Isaiah 65 is this picture of of God coming to a group of people and wanting to share the gospel with them, wanting them to receive the grace that he has to offer them. And I want you to hear the way that Isaiah lays this out. Isaiah 65, picking up verse 1, says this, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me, to a nation that did not call my name. I said, here I am. Here am I. And all day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walked in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoked me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on the altars of brick who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil who eat the flesh of the pigs, whose pots hold the broth of impure meat, who say, keep away. Don't come near me, for I'm too sacred for you. We have this picture here of a God who came, came from the other side for us who humbled himself in pursuit of us, who laid down his life for us, not just for us in this room, but for the city that we live in, for all people of all times.